I work on researching the atmospheres of exoplanets. I try and figure out what the air on these alien worlds is actually made of, ultimately with the long-term goal of trying to figure out is there life elsewhere in the universe and what are these distant worlds really like? Today I'm speaking to Ryan MacDonald. I met him to record the podcast at the Cambridge University's Institute of Astronomy, where he works. He's also the man behind the successful YouTube channel, Martian Colonist. He's full of passion and knowledge and wants to motivate and inspire the next generation to ask big questions and solve bigger problems. And he thinks one of the best ways to do this is through space exploration. After speaking with him, I'm inclined to agree. I really enjoyed talking to him and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Ryan MacDonald. I think a good place to start with a conversation about Mars is why do we need to go there? So not only why do we go there as a species, but why do we actually need to put humans onto the surface of that planet? So Mars is a particularly fascinating object because if we look at all of the other planets and bodies that we have in the solar system, Mars is the only one beyond the Earth that we reliably know once had a period where it was so dramatically different that we actually believe that Mars would have been habitable around 4 billion years ago. Um, If we look back historically, back in the time of the Victorians, for instance, it was thought that Mars might actually be a habitable planet already. There might be Martians there. And obviously that didn't turn out to be the case. There weren't any canals on Mars. And although the very initial missions that we sent to Mars, like the, the Mariner missions in the 1960s, presented this this image of a dry, dead world that was such a disappointment to what the public had been expecting. The image of Mars has really changed in recent years. Now that, for example, rovers on the surface of Mars have discovered sedimentary rock deposits indicating that lakes and maybe even an ocean in the Northern Hemisphere must have been stable for hundreds of millions of years. And so it's this question where we know Mars was habitable, but we don't yet know whether it was inhabited. Or even could there still be perhaps microbial life beneath the surface of Mars today? So Mars links into some very deep philosophical questions. Are we alone in the universe? How did life itself actually start? Is life on Earth unique? Is it the only way that life can function? If we go to Mars and we find signs of life on there, we can start to answer some of these really deep questions for the very first time. So there are some fascinating scientific questions to address on Mars. But of course you might imagine, well, we could do this by sending robotic missions. And indeed there are robotic missions planned, like the European Space Agency are planning to send a mission to Mars, a rover called ExoMars in 2021, that will be the first mission since the Viking landers in the 70s to explicitly look for signs of life on Mars, in this case by drilling about two metres beneath the surface. So why send humans to Mars? Well, if we look at anywhere else in the solar system that we could send people, don't land on the surface of Venus. You won't last an hour. Mm -hmm. The moon is fantastic for industry and there's a lot of resources up there, but it's bombarded by micrometeorites. It doesn't have an atmosphere. It's, It's not a sustainable place to live in the long term. Mars has an atmosphere. 
Its temperature, sure, it's on the cold side, about minus 50 degrees Celsius on average. But um, just last year in in that big ice and frost storm that hit North America, there were large parts of North America that were colder than Mars at that particular point. (laughs) Mars is one place where with technology that we already have today and and a few areas that's going to be developed, we can imagine actually living there in the long term. Since we know Mars was a habitable planet in the past and that a large fraction of those resources, like the, the ocean that used to be there in the Northern Hemisphere, a decent fraction of that is frozen at the Northern and Southern polar ice caps. So one of the questions is, could we turn back the clock? Could we transform Mars into a habitable planet again such that we could have a second home, not just for humanity, but for all life on the Earth to protect it from extinction in the long term. And Mars is the only other place that we know of that we can even think about doing this. Yeah, I think that's the argument that Elon Musk likes to put forward, isn't it? That for the survival of our species, at some point there probably will be an extinction event of some description. It's happened to the vast majority of life that's ever happened on on Earth. 99.9% of all life is extinct. I mean, that that argument is commonly made, but I think it's a little bit more on the pessimistic side. I, I don't think that we should go to Mars out of fear that there's going to be an imminent extinction event, because although it, it may happen in the future, statistically, it's probably many, many human lives, maybe even a thousand years from now. I think we should actually go to Mars out of hope, not out of fear. Because when we look at how inspired the world was by the Apollo moon landings, starting in 1969 and up to 1972, you can actually trace statistics like how many people were doing PhDs in physics in the United States, how many people were studying science in school, and the former went up by a factor of three after the moon landings. The number of people studying science went up by a factor of two. And we're still seeing the economic impacts of all those young people that were inspired to go into science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. So do you think the biggest Mm. reason to go to Mars is the social impact that it has on on our culture? The inspiration, I would absolutely say, is the key benefit that we would get immediately. You can think about the the long-term aspects, about survival of the species, but in the near term, the inspiration will change the world. That's such a great message, such a good reason. So let's talk a little bit about some of the missions that are planned in order to get there. So we mentioned Elon Musk a second ago. He is the founder of SpaceX. SpaceX is quite good at getting into the media. Things like putting their Tesla Roadster into orbit. Brilliant piece of advertising, I suppose. Yeah, it was absolutely genius. <laughs> yeah. But where were they in terms of their Mars mission? What have they got going on? I know that they've done tons over the last year or two to show the world that their rockets are A, ready, and B, reusable, which is just crazy. So this is really interesting because... Elon Musk and SpaceX in particular have made no secret that the entire reason the company exists is to create the technology to actually send people to Mars. But there wasn't really much concrete information about how they were going to do this in the public domain until 2016, when Elon Musk gave a a big public presentation where he spoke for an hour about SpaceX's vision to create a rocket unlike anything that has been seen before using all of the lessons that they have learned about how you need to have reusable rocketry if it's going to be cheap enough to actually get large amounts of cargo and eventually people into space. 
They are working on a system which has changed a number of times and has been revised over the years. But at the moment, the system, it's called Starship and Super Heavy. It's a a two-stage rocket that would have a huge booster at the bottom. Not not that much bigger than existing rockets, but it's much wider. It's actually nine meters in diameter. And it would have 31 engines at the bottom, making it the most powerful rocket in the world. Far more powerful than the Saturn V moon rocket. And on top of this booster is a giant spaceship that looks like something from science fiction. And the big difference is we're not talking about sending four people, six people or so to Mars. That has been the the frequent historical picture that NASA has been pursuing since the Apollo moon landings. Starship could send 100 people to Mars. We're talking in one, go. in one go. I mean, it would have to... It uses up all its fuel to get into orbit, and then you have to send up a number of tanker spacecraft to dock with it and refuel it because it's just such a big, heavy vehicle. But yeah, 100 people or 100 tons in one go to Mars. And this completely changes the picture. We're no longer thinking about small little pods on the surface of Mars. This is where you can seriously start thinking about building a small village or a town or maybe even a city one day on Mars. It just fundamentally changes the picture when you can send that many people and that much mass to Mars. What sort of timescale have they got? This is where it gets crazy, because although they're proposing something that's far more ambitious than anything the space agencies are proposing, they're proposing to do this decades before NASA are currently considering. So officially, NASA are targeting sending people to orbit around Mars in 2033 at the moment, and then notionally having a landing maybe around 2037. What would be the point in sending them into orbit if they're not going to land them, sending them all that way? How many months does it take? It takes about seven months to get to Mars. So we're really thinking about a two-year mission there and back. Um, So yeah, that's a very common criticism. Why send people to orbit and just not do anything? Seems like a lot of risk without the reward. Yeah, it, it is very much inspired by the Apollo mentality where we started by orbiting the moon on one of the earlier Apollo missions, in particular um, Apollo 10, which did everything that Apollo 11 did apart from landing. But obviously when you're spending so much time to get there, why not land? You can come up with some justifications. For example, the moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos, are fascinating objects. We have no idea how they actually formed. They, They look like asteroids, but they're actually in almost perfectly circular orbits, which you wouldn't expect asteroids to have. So there's, there are some mysteries you can solve by going there. And you could teleoperate rovers on the surface of Mars if you had astronauts on one of the moons of Mars. Uh, so you wouldn't have to deal with the lag that you would Absolutely. From Earth. So that there are some advantages, but I don't think overall they justify not going to land. So NASA are looking at about 2037. And then if you factor in possible delays and everything we're realistically talking about the 2040s before a space agency would actually go there. It always seems to be about 20 years away, unfortunately. SpaceX are talking about 2024 to try and send the first people to Mars. Now, I don't think they will actually meet that deadline. Yeah, he's renowned for setting ridiculous True, targets. yes, he even got a name, Elon time. <laughs> but the remarkable thing about SpaceX is that although they, they set ambitious goals and they almost always miss the goals, they do what they say eventually. They do actually get there. Mm. Everyone was laughing at SpaceX when they said they were going to start reusing their rockets, and now it's routine to see these rocket boosters coming down, firing their engines, 
and then landing either on stationary landing pads or on ships out in the ocean. The first time I saw that, it absolutely blew my mind. I was just looking for the the strings. It does look like something out of Thunderbirds, doesn't it? It's absolutely mind-bending. It's like something from science fiction, but um, it's now routine. And, and SpaceX is still the only company that can do this for orbital-class rockets. There is Blue Origin that can do it with their suborbital rocket. But besides that, no governments are doing this yet. They're taking advantage of it, um, for example, um, in, in my own field, one of our telescopes, the um, Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, was actually launched on a Falcon 9. So the reusable rocketry is already starting to benefit governmental organisations and particularly science. But still SpaceX are the only player in the game. Their plan, roughly, would be to develop this Starship and Super Heavy rocket try and launch the first one without anyone on board to Mars in 2022. That would set up some very basic infrastructure like a a fuel refinery, for instance, to make the fuel that the Starship actually uses, which is actually... Um, so Starship doesn't use standard rocket fuel, which is... I mean, it, it can be kerosene and liquid oxygen. It's, it's a complicated thing to actually make. But Starship has been designed to use liquid methane and liquid oxygen... And that's because you can actually make those two things on Mars just from ice beneath the surface and carbon dioxide from the Martian atmosphere. So you can refuel yourself on the surface of Mars. They would establish some of the infrastructure on Mars before any people go and then launch people to Mars. So although I think 2024 may be a little bit ambitious, I would be surprised if they weren't there by 2031. So I should say that uh, you can't just launch to Mars anytime you like if you're trying to be energy efficient. There is a, a two-year gap, which we call a launch window, which is why it tends to be that a mission is launched to Mars roughly every two years. That's to do with the distance between Earth and Mars in their orbits? Yep. So uh, because Mars is further out, it orbits more slow than the Earth around the Sun. And so we have to wait until they get to just the right position that we can then send a mission efficiently between them. Uh, so that's called the um, the Hoffman Transfer Orbit, and it's about 26 months between each launch window. Okay. And we can precisely calculate when to launch this mission just from orbital mechanics. You mentioned the atmosphere of Mars. It's got CO2 in it. What else is it made up of? Yeah, so the majority of the Martian atmosphere is carbon dioxide. It does also have um, nitrogen and argon in the atmosphere, both inert gases, we do see very, very small trace amounts of gases like oxygen. Nowhere near enough to be able to breathe. We're, we're talking about almost everything apart from CO2. It's like this tiny slice that's just like a couple percent of the atmosphere. Right. One thing that's been particularly interesting in recent years is the question of whether or not there is methane in the atmosphere of Mars. Because naturally, methane should be destroyed in the Martian atmosphere just from chemical reactions and from sunlight destroying it. So the amount of methane that some telescopes have seen suggests that there must be a source of methane, something producing it. And on the Earth, one of the greatest sources of methane is life. Would you also get that from volcanic eruptions as well? Absolutely. Then? And this is why there, there's controversy there, because there could also be geological processes. If you have stores of methane locked inside of Mars, and then there's a Mars quake or something happens to release it, then you could also produce some methane. But at the moment, it's not definitively settled as to whether there even is or is not methane on Mars. Some missions have seen it. Curiosity has even seen it on the surface in the last few years. 
But then there are satellites orbiting Mars that have not seen it. So you can't breathe the atmosphere on Mars at the moment. It's also a lot thinner than what we have on the Earth. It's only about 0.9% the the total pressure of what we have on the Earth, um, which has some interesting implications. Because if you imagine having a block of ice on the surface of Mars and you heat it up, it doesn't actually turn into water. It turns directly into steam. Uh, it's a process we call sublimation, going straight from a solid into a gas. And that's because there isn't enough pressure to actually cause the atoms to be close enough to behave like a liquid. Just the second that you melt the solid, it just f- flies apart into a gas. How would you get around that if you were actually on the surface of Mars, if you wanted to have liquid water? How, what would the process be there? You wouldn't be able to do it on the surface, but inside of your habitats, they would um, be pressurized. Right. So then everything would behave as normal inside. You probably wouldn't have the exact same pressure that we have on the surface of the Earth because um, the higher the pressure inside and the lower the pressure outside, the greater force and stress that you put on your habitats. So by having a lower pressure, perhaps what people might experience on the top of mountains on Earth, Mm. then you don't need to make the structures quite as rigid and quite as reinforced. We would have a lower pressure, but people would be able to adapt to it because there are entire communities living in like mountain ranges in Peru, for instance, that have adapted to incredibly low oxygen concentrations and lower pressures. We wouldn't quite go that high, uh, that low in pressure, I mean to say. Yeah, so inside the habitat, liquid water would exist fine. Well, that's good to know for the people who are going to go there first. <laughs> we came all this way and there's no water to drink. <laughs> <laughs> so behind SpaceX then, if they're the, they're the leaders at the moment, who else have we got? You mentioned Blue Origin. How far have they got in their process? So Blue Origin is a, a company founded by Jeff Bezos, uh, the founder of Amazon. They have the advantage that they have effectively infinite money to pour into it. They do. They're they're in the quite early stages at the moment. They're looking firstly at trying to get space tourism to work, potentially flying someone by the end of this year. But it's just a tiny little capsule that will just launch straight up. The second that you've crossed the line to space, the capsule goes into free fall and people see the Earth, they wave and then they come back down. They are working on a much larger rocket that they call New Glenn, And that is a Falcon Heavy class rocket. They're jumping straight from a tiny little rocket that can just reach space, skipping the Falcon 9 stage and going straight to just a mega rocket, pretty much. So they're not going to use the SpaceX rockets for their missions. They're going to create their their own independent... Yeah, they make their own engines. They're building their own rockets. They're a completely independent endeavor. And they're it seems, the only other competition that SpaceX has in terms of reusable rocketry. Blue Origin actually managed to land their new Shepard vehicle, this tiny little rocket they have at the moment, just before SpaceX managed the Falcon 9. They're, com- they're completely different challenges, though. An orbital rocket landing is far harder than a suborbital rocket. But Blue Origin are very much focused at the moment on the moon. In the last three years, they've actually been developing a moon lander called Blue Moon, which they officially unveiled um, just in the last month or so, which is very well-timed because NASA are pushing very heavily for the moon at the moment. And so when Blue Origin can announce, oh, you want to go to the moon, guess what? We have just happened to have this lander we've been designing for three years. Do you want to buy it? Yeah, very business savvy. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of an easy prediction to make, because if you look historically at the focus of NASA, 
every time a new administration comes in, they flip between the moon and Mars. It's, it's very reliable because no president wants to fulfill the legacy of their predecessor. And this is part of the reason why NASA hasn't got to Mars. Because if you keep proposing a mission which is 20 years down the line, by definition, you can never achieve it in the eight-year length of a two-term presidency. Mm. It's a shame that politics can get in the way of these sort of scientific research missions. And that's, that's why I'm particularly excited so much by these private enterprises, because it, it just changes the game. You don't have to worry about the next election cycle completely changing the focus. So other than SpaceX and Blue Origin, the only other one that I have come across that I've seen a very well thought out mission objective is the reason that I have heard about you, and that's Mars One. Now, I think I started reading about Mars One about four years ago. Um, it just seemed so exciting that they set themselves such a short schedule and they said they were going to do it for a fraction of the price that everybody else was. The primary reason they would be able to do that was because it was a one-way mission. You applied for this. I'm just trying to understand how did you justify that in your head that you would be able to go to Mars forever? Sure. So, I mean, I first heard about Mars One in 2012. They were originally founded in 2011, so quite a, quite a while ago now. And I remember at the time I, I watched like some of the first videos that they'd put out, and it really struck me that here was someone actually saying, look, we're going to go to Mars and we're going to go to Mars quickly. Within 10 years, this wasn't just a mission to go and plant a flag, collect some samples and return. This was going directly to the settlement phase, building a base on the surface of Mars, which as a kid when I was growing up, this was the science fiction dream. But it always seemed so far down the line. If NASA were going to go in the 2030s, would we have a base by 2060? It just seemed something that I would never get to see. Mm. So when Mars One announced their plans and that they were going to do a one-way trip and that this was the critical innovation that would make it feasible with existing technology, that was groundbreaking. At the time, Mars One got so much attention in the media. It's a very catchy headline. It really captures the imagination. It does. So in terms of my own reasoning, I've been fascinated with Mars my entire life for the question of, is there life on Mars? And what does that mean for life on the Earth? When I started reflecting, particularly in 2013, when I had a chance to meet the founder of Mars One at a talk he gave in Edinburgh, I reflected a lot about what actually matters in life at the end of the day, is if you think about what you actually want to achieve, and will it actually matter in the long term? There were two things that drove me, the search for life in the universe and inspiring children and young people to want to be scientists when they grow up. And so I realised that if I were to do a one-way mission to Mars, it seemed to me that the potential payoffs of doing something like this, in terms of just making the world a better place, it felt almost like selfish not to do something like this. Even just from signing up, the opportunities that I had to promote human spaceflight, science, engineering, etc. It, it created a platform that I wouldn't have been able to access any other way. So in many ways, my science communication endeavours in the years since have been shaped quite a lot from the experiences that I've had with Mars One. 
But um, I should say that the game has changed so much since Mars 1 announced their plan. Because when they came aboard, there was no reusable rocketry. People were talking about it, but it wasn't actually achieved until the end of 2015. And reusable rocketry is another key factor that makes things so much more interesting because Mars 1 were talking about the mission being cheap because of it being one way. But when you add in technology like making fuel from local resources that SpaceX are pursuing, reusable rocketry to make it cheap, and the fact that SpaceX are now talking about a rocket that can send 100 people instead of four like Mars 1 were envisioning, it's changed the paradigm in terms of what you can actually do to the point where technologically speaking, return missions to Mars probably will be possible and that you don't need to do one-way trips if we pursue a model like SpaceX are doing. Now, I say that technologically, I still think that the first crew that goes to Mars should sign up with the expectation that it will be a one-way trip. Part of that is just the risk involved, but also if you're on Mars, you're one of the very first crews you're creating all the infrastructure and everything that will be needed there. If another crew comes two years later and then you just cycle out, Mars is trying really hard to kill you. It's, it's not a good place to be. <laughs> and so you need the expertise of the first crew there to help the second crew and continually expand the settlement. And there are so many unknowns in terms of how human biology would react in the reduced gravity environment on Mars. It could be the case where your muscles and bones would waste away to the point that if you were to return to Earth, then you've got seven months of zero G, and then you're exposed to about five or six G during re-entry. And if your bones are so brittle and thin, you might not even survive re-entry on the Earth. Would there be any worry about the heart as well? Would, would that waste away with it not having to pump as hard in, uh, in a lower gravity? It was a very pressing concern in the early days of human spaceflight, that if we sent someone into space, they would immediately die because their heart wouldn't be able to function in zero G. Obviously, that turned out not to be the case. And we now know a lot more about how fluids behave in reduced gravity environments. Um, so my speculation is that that shouldn't be too much of an issue. I'd be much more concerned with the rib cage fracturing during re-entry, for instance. Is there any way that you could conceivably do that type of experiment or, or run a, uh, a simulation? There's very little data. Well, we have all of human history providing data on one Earth gravity. We have information on the space station for people spending up to about 400 days in microgravity, approximately zero G. But we don't know anything about how the human body behaves in long periods of time in Martian gravity, which is 38% of what we have on the Earth. I'm just trying to imagine myself on Mars at the moment. I don't know what my mindset would be. I think that I would really miss the simple things, like going for a walk and just being able to pick up the phone and speak to my parents. It's just such such a long way away, such a big commitment. And I, I really admire your, I suppose, selflessness when you said that it would be selfish not to go and do it. Yeah, and that that's an area where... When astronauts go to the space station, they often talk about things about how they they just suddenly realise how much they miss the sound of the ocean, for instance. Mm. And obviously that's something in short supply on Mars these days. <laughs> but I think one way to look about it is that, sure, there are lots of experiences that on Mars you would not be able to have. 
But equally, you would get to experience things that no human being has ever experienced before. On Mars, imagine looking out over the rim of a crater as the sun sets. Sunsets are blue on Mars. You would be the only human to witness something like that, a blue sunset on the cosmic shoreline of an alien world. Yeah, when you put it like that, that's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, so... What's the reason that they're blue? It's the pressure of the atmosphere on Mars, again, just being about 1% of what we have on the Earth. So the way that light refracts and scatters around the air is different. So if you were to thicken Mars' atmosphere to about the same as Earth, then that would then change and you would then get red sunsets. Boring old normal red sunsets. (laughs) So yeah, I'd say there will be some experiences that you have on Mars that you just cannot have on Earth. So I think in the early days of a Martian settlement, when we're not fighting for our survival or conducting scientific research, I think there'll be a lot of fascinating poetry that'll be written on Mars. Mm. So for example, we've seen a lot of astronauts who have become like minor celebrities recently from communicating to the public what it's like in space. A good example that comes to mind is, is Chris Hadfield recently, obviously singing Space Oddity on the space station and here in the UK, Tim Peake, of course. Yeah. Imagine having someone on Mars able to record videos and send them back to school children here on the Earth showing what it's like to live on another planet. And imagine just going out at night and looking up at the sky and seeing a red star and knowing that there are people living up there. Mm. It's, it's these things that really drive and motivate me because I, I want to live in that world. And if there's anything that I can do to help make that world happen and bring it a little bit closer, even if I ultimately wouldn't get to go one day, this is the thing that motivates. This is why I'm so passionate about human spaceflight and particularly spaceflight to Mars. Yeah, that's so inspirational. So we've talked about SpaceX, Blue Origin, Mars One, I think Richard Branson's uh, Virgin Galactic. Where do you see them in this picture? Are they planning Mars at all? Virgin Galactic are very much focused on commercial space tourism just into um, suborbital flights. So they've got an interesting space plane that they've been developing for quite a number of years. I mean, I I remember when I was in school, Virgin Galactic saying they were going to be flying people by 2007. (laughs) So um, clearly it hasn't happened yet, but they seem to be pretty close. They've already had a few test flights just in the last year where they've actually sent pilots up above 80 kilometers. So not quite above the official definition of space, which is 100 kilometers, but pretty much the edge of space. Richard Branson has said for many years that he will go on the first flight with his family to prove how safe it is. And perhaps that's why they keep delaying and pushing it back. (laughs) But perhaps within the next year, we could be talking about Virgin Galactic sending people into space, Blue Origin also doing this. This would be a quite expensive service at the beginning. We're we're talking about people paying about $200,000 just to get about half an hour in space at best. But that's how everything starts with Mm. a new technology. It, all, it was the same with flight. At the beginning, only rich people can afford it and they get a terrible service. But then the money that comes from that refines the technology and makes it more affordable for everyone and creates a much better service. Mm. So imagine getting on a rocket for 80 quid like you can for, <laughs> uh, for on Ryanair or something like that. SpaceX have actually talked recently within the last year to 18 months or so about how they could use the rocket they're developing for Mars to do point-to-point transportation on the Earth so that you could get between 
any two places on Earth in less than an hour using this rocket. They would just go straight up, just skim the atmosphere, and then come back down. So I think that will come much sooner than we actually expect. I suppose, like you were saying earlier, it it would inspire people. People would be able to actually go up there, take photos, see the Earth as a a globe. In particular, there's something called the overview effect, which is whenever someone has actually gone into space and looked down and seen the Earth, it does something to them. Most astronauts come back and suddenly they're super passionate about the environment and about uh, world peace, and because the, you don't see borders when you look from space, for instance. Do you think that's just the realisation that this fragile little blue marble that they're looking down on is surrounded by blackness? That is the only place that we know of that definitely supports some kind of life, and that it's about something a little bit bigger. Yeah, and so only about 500 people have gone into space at all. I mean, 4 billion people took flights last year. Imagine if you could get millions of people going into space, even for short periods of time. I personally would like to see all world leaders go into space (laughs) just so they can actually see that this is all there is at the moment. Um, Maybe we'll get to Mars in the near future, but for now, this is the home of the human race. This will always be where most people are living, and you have to protect that. So... It's, it's hard to estimate such things and how to quantify them, but I think that deep sociological impact of space becoming accessible, that's something that's not quite appreciated as much, but I think will make a big difference once spaceflight does become affordable. So getting on to world leaders then, how do you see the government's role in, in spaceflight in the near future? You mentioned NASA. It's great that NASA have got the agency to be able to go and plan these missions do you envisage that they will continue with that so nasa is very much going through a transition at the moment because large parts of nasa have been focused on the very traditional okay we have a big government plan we've got a lot of money we're going to throw it all at this and we're going to solve the problem now that private companies are also coming on board and they can do things cheaper they can innovate they can do things faster because they're willing to take more risk The ideal middle ground is to have public-private partnerships. NASA have tried this already at the International Space Station. They retired the Space Shuttle in 2009, which cost about a billion dollars for every launch. So they decided to try something new where they would pay two private companies, uh, SpaceX at the time and um, Orbital ATK. And NASA just said, okay, here's $2 billion, here's $2 billion, build something that can get to the space station and then do 12 flights supplying the space station. And it worked. That that $2 billion that was given to SpaceX developed the Falcon 9 rocket, developed the Dragon capsule, and the Falcon 9 is now being used for satellite launches and for many other areas for launching science missions. It's one of the best and most effective investments that NASA could have made. So moving forward... NASA are trying to replicate that success, but for the moon, they just say, we want a lunar lander, it must be this big and able to land this much on the surface of Mars. We don't care how you do it, but these are our requirements. How much will it cost you to do it? And they then get bids from multiple different companies, select one, and they go away and do it. This approach of NASA becoming a customer, as opposed to this 
big bureaucracy that has large amounts of engineering expertise, that's where things are really changing. So I think NASA can set the vision, they can set the scientific goals and the bigger picture, but contracting out the actual day-to-day rocketry to efficient private companies, that I think is the way that the governments need to adapt moving forward in this era. It'll probably get them quicker to Mars. I can imagine NASA setting up a colony separate to SpaceX's colony or separate to Mars One's colony if they end up being able to go there. If that happened, I wonder how much cooperation there would be between the colonies Mm. because I would really want the other camps to be able to help me out if there were Mm. any problems with my mission. I'd be really surprised if there wasn't cooperation because Mars is a hostile environment. Things will go wrong when we're figuring out how to live there. And if we are in the situation where we have multiple different settlements, outposts or colonies on the surface of Mars, so long as geographically they are close enough, I would expect them to be able to help each other out. I should clarify that although Mars is smaller than the Earth, it's a big place. The total land area of Mars is the same as the total land area on the Earth. Just take away the oceans. (laughs) So if you're on opposite sides of the planet and something goes wrong there might not be anything in the early days that the other colony can do to help you. Once colonies have their own infrastructure and their own capability to launch rockets from the surface of Mars back to the Earth, at that point, I could imagine in an emergency, a rocket being able to take off from Mars, fly around the planet, and then land at another colony to deliver them supplies in the exact same way that SpaceX are talking about flying from point to point on the Earth. So this will be possible... But it's, it's just so speculative at the moment because we, we still don't yeah. even know how we're going to get one rocket on the surface of Mars with people, let alone like multiple different colonies. Have they picked out an area or multiple areas that would be ideal for the first settlements? Have they already got this plan? SpaceX did hold a workshop late last year in, in August last year where they brought together specialists for a Mars settlement workshop, but they never actually publicize what they actually discuss so that they're starting to think about that there are other companies though that have thought about where you would put a settlement in mars one's case for instance they talk about a compromise the closer to the equator that you are the more directly ahead sunlight is so solar panels are much more effective on the equator of mars but the closer you are to the polar ice caps the more water ice there is beneath the surface. And that's critical for living on Mars. You can make your drink of water, you can make your air from the water. So they establish a compromise of about 45 degrees north latitude, about halfway between the equator and the northern polar ice cap. The geology is just completely different in the northern hemisphere versus the south. Some people think that could just be, well, the northern hemisphere is like the ocean bed of this ocean that used to be on Mars, Other people think there could have been two colliding planets early on in the history of Mars. And that's why the south is so just rugged and cratered while the north is pretty flat. But in short, the northern hemisphere, about 45 degrees north, would be a great place to land. And what are some of the problems then? Like, How would you deal with the heat? Because uh, it's got such a wide range, hasn't it? You can go down to minus 120 something like that and it could go it does go into the plus as well if we're on the equator 
Yeah, so on, on a nice summer day, <laughs> we've seen temperatures as high as plus 30 on the equator of Mars. But then equally, you can get temperatures around, I think it's like minus 200 or so in the polar ice caps. You can get some insulation for free by building your sediment partially underground. So I'm talking about having a layer of at least a metre or so of Martian soil, which doesn't just provide thermal insulation, but it actually blocks out some of the radiation that Mars experiences as well. So you, you kill two birds for one stone. Can you just explain what the problem is with the radiation? Though? Sure. Unlike the Earth, which has a global magnetic field protecting it from these streams of charged particles that come in from the sun, Mars appears to have once had a magnetic field, but it doesn't today. We believe magnetic fields are produced by, if you have a molten outer core that flows about, all of these magma flows and electrical currents inside of that effectively turn the Earth into a giant bar magnet. That's actually why we have the aurora. It's all these charged particles from the sun getting trapped in these magnetic fields and spiralling into the poles. Mars doesn't have that, and so its surface is bombarded by charged particles from the sun. And that's what we mean by the radiation on the surface. And that's very bad for living organisms because um, radiation loves to go straight into your DNA. It just knocks off random electrons and atoms. And that can cause DNA to fail when it's making a copy and hence causing a mutation, which commonly is something like cancer. So we copy ourselves so often, don't we? Like, I think the stats, like, there, there isn't any cell in your body that was there uh, 10 years ago. Because we do that so often, would living on Mars ever be sustainable? Yeah, the radiation is a problem today. We do have ideas on how to mitigate it. As I say, living partially underground is a great way to do it. If you had a settlement that has a thin layer of water almost like double glazing but water inside, water is great at absorbing radiation. If you've got a lot of energy, you could have a magnetic field generator in your base that would also deflect some of the particles. So there are lots of technological solutions there. But in the longer term, it does cause some implications for life on Mars. Because if you want to go out on the surface and you want to explore, you will be exposed to much higher levels of radiation. Mm. I mean, we're not talking about deadly levels, what we're talking about is you would want to not go out for more than about eight hours a week. If you did that and you stuck to those limits, then over your entire life, your risk of getting cancer would be less than if you were a smoker, for instance. So it's, it's perfectly hmm. adaptable and you could teleoperate rovers from inside your base, for instance. You would just have a quota for how long you should go outside for. I think if you were to build cities, the majority of people don't actually spend that much time outside anyway eight hours personally i'd like to spend a lot more than eight hours outside <laughs> but I, I can see that that's actually feasible and it's not like a hard limit like you go above it and suddenly you yeah. die if you're if you're doing a scientific expedition and you want to go out to some interesting landmark for a week you could do that if you're only doing it like once a year or so mm. yeah that's really fascinating so other than the radiation then what are the other major problems that we might encounter so one of the major problems that has received a lot of attention, particularly since The Martian came out, is global dust storms. And that's something really unique that Mars faces. There's a special dust storm season that hits most Martian summers, 
that so the Martian year is about two Earth years. So once every two years, there's a chance of getting these storms. It's not like clockwork. It's not guaranteed that you'll get a storm that coats the entire world. Normally, you just get local or regional storms, and then a big global one might hit every 10, 15 years or so. Fortunately, dust storms on Mars are not as bad as they're depicted in the Martian. If you had winds blowing at you at the speed of a hurricane on the Earth, you could walk outside absolutely fine on Mars. And again, it's the lower pressure on Mars. It means the force of the air is about 100 times less. The problem from the dust storms, though, is that they block out the sun. If you've ever seen a photograph of Mars when a dust storm takes place, you can barely see the surface. And historically, this actually was caused an interesting issue in the, in the 1970s, when some of the first missions were going to Mars, the Russians finally got to Mars with their Mars 2 and Mars 3 missions. They got there, and a global dust storm had hit Mars. But they had programmed the missions just to go straight to Mars and land immediately. And so they tried to land during a global dust storm. One of the missions impacted the surface. The other one actually managed to land and took like one photograph and then just died. (laughs) While the Americans with their Viking missions got there at the same time, but orbited and waited for the storm to end before landing. So yeah, dust storms do cause issues. The technology that people will probably use to generate power in the early days will be solar panels. Your solar panels are already less effective because you're 50% further away from the sun. So solar panels are only about 40% as effective. Dust storm hits, bye-bye to your electricity supply. So you have to have efficient battery technology. Maybe this is um, maybe SpaceX can rely on Tesla for that department. You have to ration your electricity supplies. So it takes a lot of electricity to separate water into hydrogen and oxygen. It's a process called electrolysis. You zap water and you get H2 and O2 come off. And that's the main way you would make oxygen to breathe on Mars. But you don't really want to be using up all your power doing that during a dust storm, which could last about 60 days in the worst case scenario. So you would have to ration your air supply. You'd have to stop taking showers, for instance, unless it was recycled water. Uh, That would be the biggest issue. So any Martian settlement would have to always have vast reservoirs of contingency supplies. Because imagine you were a city on Mars and a dust storm hits. You've got to have everything you need for a city to function for 60 days without any electricity generation, for instance. No new air coming in and no new water coming in. I think one of the biggest spin-offs of the Mars settlements in the early days will be recycling technology, which will be very helpful back here on the Earth. One of the biggest arguments about not going to Mars is why are we going to Mars when we need to really look after the one planet that we currently live on? That's such a a great argument that we are able to go to Mars, develop this recycling technology because it's going to be absolutely essential and there'll be a, a monetary incentive for that. I think that the biggest export from Mars will be ideas. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be mining things on the surface of Mars and shipping them back to the Earth. It's far too expensive to do that. I mean, we're an innovative species. Whenever there are challenges, we love to try and solve them. And if we don't have some frontier to push against, we stagnate. By trying to solve the challenges just to be able to live on Mars, the technological spin-offs will be immense. And I should clarify that the amount of money that you would have to spend to build a Mars settlement... It's absolutely tiny compared to what we spend in like 
the military or in banking or in finance areas of the earth and it would actually be um, a lot smaller than like many aid budgets so it's a small amount of money it, it will always be less than about 0.1 percent of what earth produces but the spin-offs from that will create solutions for problems right here on earth that we wouldn't be able to obtain otherwise it's great value for money going to mars you go to mars to solve problems on earth which is an interesting viewpoint. Yeah. Has there been anything already that's come out of the, the missions to Mars that we've been able to utilise here on Earth? So solar power generation was really um, pioneered by the early days of space exploration. Obviously, we see these beautiful solar panels on the International Space Station. And in fact, solar power technology has improved to the point where even the Juno mission, which is around Jupiter at the moment, is using solar panels and you only receive about 4% of the light from the sun by that point. That's one immediate area that's very obvious. There are obviously a lot of spin-offs that have come from research on the space station, which is doing a lot of medical research, for instance, up there, and also materials science. It can be a little bit difficult to, to track some of the direct innovations, but there are also things like... Um, so for the Apollo moon landing, you needed miniaturized computers for the command module. So integrated circuit technology can actually be traced in many ways to the Apollo 11 moon landings. So you can thank your mobile phone on the moon landings. Um, so it can be hard to trace this, but when there have been attempts to quantify downhill the total like economic impact of the Apollo 11 moon landings, the figures that I've heard over like 50 years after the moon landings is about a 10 to 1 return on investment so the numbers can be scary at the beginning, but the technological spin-offs, the jobs created, and all of those people that go into science and engineering because of it, it's one of the best investments you can actually make in the future, having a space program. Mm. And, and I suppose you can't really guess what the new innovations are going to be from Mars, otherwise would have... Would... And that's what's exciting about it. The best innovations are those you don't expect. Yeah, that's great. So once we've set our colonies... What is the research that will be vital to be carried out then and there? I mean, we surely we're going to be looking for, for signs of life. Right at the beginning, a large part of the research on Mars will be focused just on things that are critical to survival. So material science will actually be one of those areas. Because if you want to be sustainable on Mars and not be reliant on resupply shipments from Earth every two years, you need to figure out how to use local resources to manufacture replacement parts, for instance, researching what is the elemental composition of the surface material on Mars, we call it regolith, and can you, for example, sort that by grain size, effectively melt it by blasting it with microwaves, and make Mars bricks, for instance? Can you do 3D printing using materials already on Mars? Material scientists chemists and geologists, that would be a lot of the very initial research that would be going on there. Um, you touched upon the aspect of life, which is obviously one of the areas that I'm most excited by. So there will be people doing field expeditions to collect samples from particularly promising areas. For example, um, there have been some studies which have suggested that there are areas of Mars where periodically there can be just flows of something that's very similar to water over the surface mm, i've seen those photos yeah so it, it's not quite pure water which as i mentioned is not stable on mars it's kind of this briny salty fluid the salt 
forms a kind of antifreeze, which enables the water to exist for very short periods of time. But everywhere we found water on Earth, we found life there. So imagine outfitting an expedition to go there, collecting some samples of this fluid and looking if there's anything alive in there. And once you find the life, then you've got to sequence its genetic code, assuming it is DNA-based, which I think is probably likely. Um, And I say that because we see rocks from Mars on Earth all the time in Antarctica. Similarly, you might imagine that there have been rocks from Earth which have landed on the surface of Mars. And we know there are microorganisms that can survive in the vacuum of space. And it only takes a couple stray microbes to make it across the vastness of space to then go and take over another planet. So given the amount of contamination events exchanging material between these planets over the last billions or so of years, I would be very surprised if life on Mars was not already related to life on the Earth. You said there's a lot in Antarctica. What's the process that they actually get to the Earth or the Earth rocks get to Mars? Asteroid impacts. Bam! We see huge craters on Mars. We also see big craters on the Earth. Most of the ones on Earth are much are much younger, though, because of weathering and all that. And whenever there's an asteroid impact, it produces so much energy that rocks can escape the Earth's or Mars's gravity. Yeah, so it's mainly impact events that actually cause that transfer. So could it be feasible that, that life actually started on Mars and through one of those impact events brought some microbes to Earth, a more habitable environment, and we have what we have around us today? Absolutely, and I think this would be one of the big like sociological impacts that could just change the way we see ourselves. Because when Mars was a habitable planet about 4 billion years ago, The Earth was actually not really that hospitable at the time. The Earth took a little bit longer to get going. And so Mars could have had a head start. If life did start on Mars first and was transported to the Earth, we could actually establish that by sequencing the genetic code of Martian life. And whenever we do this on the Earth, it's almost like a unique fingerprint. By looking at common sections of DNA, you can work out where it falls on the tree of life, where its common ancestors are. And if we can establish that life on Mars is related to life on the Earth, but it's 4 billion years old, older than any life that we have here on the Earth, that would be very good evidence that we're all Martians. And wouldn't that be a fascinating conclusion? People have dreamt about Martians and... We are the Martians. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's incredible. Speaking about Mars just brings up so many more questions than than we can answer at the moment. That's one of the areas why I love this so much. Just there's we haven't even got there yet with people. And yet already there's there's almost like an infinite playing field that we can see of areas that um we need to investigate. And so this is why I know that if I were to go to Mars, I would not be bored. There's a lot no, to do sure. up there. Multiple lifetimes of things to discover. Um, Right, one of the aspects about going to Mars that really gets my imagination going is the idea of terraforming. Now, could you just explain the concept of terraforming for people who have never heard the word before? I mean, literally terraforming it. Terra, the Latin for Earth, it's basically making an Earth. We're not just starting from scratch, we're not just building a planet. So terraforming is a staple of science fiction. It's been there in the literature for decades. It's the idea that if you take a planet which is currently not hospitable and you try and deliberately change the conditions on this planet 
to make it like the Earth. And the reason that Mars is particularly a focus of this is because, A, we know that at one point it appeared to be a habitable planet. So we know it's possible. Nature has already achieved it. And also, and this is an interesting area that we are already anti-terraforming the Earth. We are modifying the atmosphere of the Earth by pumping more CO2 in the atmosphere and changing the temperature. We are accidentally changing the climate on the Earth. Imagine what we could do if we put our mind towards it, if we deliberately <laughs> tried to raise the temperature of Mars. That's this essential idea of terraforming. You want to raise the temperature to the point where liquid water can exist at the surface, so above freezing. You also want to raise the atmospheric pressure on Mars to the point where water can exist as a liquid instead of just this ice-steam transition we talked about. At that point, you could walk out on the surface of Mars without a spacesuit, but you wouldn't be able to breathe the air, so you would just have to have a gas mask on. But your skin could be exposed, and it would be mostly fine. you get a tan. Yeah, um, and don't do it for too long because of the radiation. <laughs> and actually, having a thicker atmosphere would actually block out some of the radiation as well, so that would actually help you quite sure. a lot. The final phase of terraforming would be to change the atmospheric composition of Mars from being mainly CO2 into something closer to what the Earth's atmosphere has. So enough oxygen to be able to breathe, and then also um, inert gases like nitrogen to act as a buffer gas. So it would be a very long process of changing Mars to become a habitable planet where you could walk out on the surface just like anywhere on the Earth. So a portion of terraforming Mars would be, I presume, to grow plants and grow trees, maybe introduce some animals. And I'm looking at the T-shirt that you've got on now, take a photo and put it on Twitter or something. I should explain. Uh, it starts off as Mars as we know it today and through a series of photos turns into something that resembles Earth but in a slightly different way. Um, but there are lakes or seas there. So is that the idea then? In a few decades or a few hundred years that we would turn into very something very similar to Earth? Terraforming would be a very long project. If you were to estimate... Since I'm an optimist, I'll start with the optimistic projections. <laughs> Good. So if you were to really commit to terraforming, if it became like the focus of the world, or maybe you already had 100 cities on Mars and they were really committed towards it, you could raise the temperature of Mars to the point where Mars experiences the first rains in billions of years and then starts filling in these lakes and eventually an ocean within about 70 years. Because you going from an average of minus 50 up to about zero, I mean, that, that's, that's a big push. On We've warmed up the Earth by, what, like a degree and a half or so since the Industrial Revolution. We're talking about 50 degrees. It can be done, and you're really helped by um, a runaway greenhouse on Mars, in that if you look at the ice caps of Mars today, what you actually see is not water ice the top layer of the ice caps is actually frozen carbon dioxide on Mars. And there's a deeper layer of water ice. So if you heat up the poles of Mars just by a few degrees, you could do that, for example, by having mirrors in space focusing light on them. Or there are molecules we know that basically just laugh at CO2 as a greenhouse gas. There are molecules that are hundreds of thousands of times more potent as a greenhouse gas that we know how to make, but we're banned from making on the Earth. 
pump those into the atmosphere or direct light on the ice caps of Mars. And then you immediately start thickening the atmosphere as this CO2 goes from being a solid into a gas. And that carbon dioxide traps in more heat and then melts more carbon dioxide. And once you start the process, you get maybe 10, 20 degrees of warming for free pretty much. So yeah, 70 years to get to the point where you could imagine having liquid water stable on the surface of Mars. There's a lot of uncertainty in how long it would take to modify the atmosphere such that you can breathe it. And part of the problem comes from the fact that we're trying to solve a 23rd century problem with 21st century ideas. Yeah, I suppose the technology that would develop between now and then... It'll be incredible. can't imagine it, can you? And, and ultimately, this will be a question for the Martians to actually address because it will be their big concern because uh, it affects the entire future of their civilization. Oh, that's something I really wanted to know, actually. I don't know at what stage people have planned reproducing on Mars, but has there been a lot of thought into it? I, I mean, you can't do any research on what effects the low gravity would have on, on the whole process, really. There has been some speculative thought, and, and it's obviously been an area addressed in science fiction a lot. There has been some research on the International Space Station with with animals and... It seems that um, animals, well, fetuses don't develop properly in zero G because there's no clear direction for them to grow. If fetuses don't develop correctly in zero G, but they do in one G, where's the threshold? Mm. Is it a continuum or do you just need like 10% for it to be fine? We don't know. And Mars, you said, was 0.3. 0.38, yeah. So yeah, we, we don't know. You would probably have to test that with animals first. So, so let's say for the sake of argument that it is possible to, to conceive and for a fetus to develop properly. Someone growing up on Mars, they receive less light than we get on the Earth. And so that will obviously influence like skin pigmentation to a certain extent from less vitamin D. The lower gravity might make them taller, for instance. Their, their bones will naturally be a little bit thinner, you might imagine. So you'll see some quite stark differences even with the first generation, just from the different physical environment, this wouldn't be an actual evolutionary change, but the higher radiation on Mars would mean people would evolve faster on Mars. <laughs> because radiation causes mutations. Many mutations are bad, but mutations is also how evolution takes place. It is, but of all the mutations that go on, how many are in a positive direction? It's a small fraction, and it would depend a little bit on how many people are, are on Mars. It's, it's a place that would probably be, be highly Darwinian in the early days, because if someone has like um, a mutation that causes a big problem when they're born, it would be very difficult for them to survive. Mm. And so that this is probably one of the driving factors, the higher radiation, and the fact that just lives are at risk more often on Mars would naturally lead to evolution being slightly faster. I think the more interesting aspect, though, is that if a baby is born on Mars and it's naturally got much thinner bones, for the same reason that earlier on I said that it would be difficult for someone who came from Earth to return from Mars to the Earth if they were on there for more than about 10 years, someone born on Mars may never be able to come to the Earth and live. So although we could be the same species, there could be a very fascinating socio-economic situation where people born on Earth can live on two planets, but people born on Mars can only live on one. Yeah, it'd be very fascinating to think of like the societal implications for that. If you're born on Mars, you can't go to any of the universities on Earth, for instance. 
imagine being born on Mars and your parents have had like all the opportunities from being on Earth and then choosing to come to Mars and then you're just stuck there. Teenagers can be angsty already, but imagine saying, Tuff, you've got to spend your life on this red rock. And don't worry, um, five generations down the line, you might see some rain. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a very interesting situation to see that. So I think very rapidly we'll get strong identities with people born on Mars. And although we'll be the same species, at least biologically, sociologically, there'll be Earthlings and there'll be Martians. If you were to guess, from the first human landing on Mars to the first human being born on Mars, how many years would that be? If a large number of people land on Mars, 100 or so within the first few years, like SpaceX were envisioning, I would say probably five to ten years. Oh, really? Yeah, I think I think it'd be pretty quick. Obviously, no one's been born on the space station. Like astronauts are very responsible people. But, um, I mean, if you have a place that is actually pleasant to live, and so you, you wouldn't want to have any children when you're just building, like, fuel refineries and things. Sure. But the second you've got a place with space that's pleasant to live, you've got large indoor spaces with maybe, like, trees and things in there, perhaps that's the point. Because, I mean, any responsible parent would think, is this the right place to, to raise a child? And I think if once you can send large numbers of people and large amounts of cargo to Mars, that will come sooner rather than later. Oh, I was thinking with that, is that going to be in my lifetime? But you, you seem to think that, yeah, definitely. I think this is the thing that will really surprise most people in that, because we, we've been told about going to Mars since like the 70s, and it hasn't happened, and many people have turned off. But things are going to happen very fast. The second that we are able to actually get there, and SpaceX are building prototypes of this Starship rocket right now, and they've already started doing engine firings, this is moving really fast. The second we get there, it'll be like when the internet came out and it just took over everything and then we can't imagine a time before it. Within 10, 15 years or so, we'll be like, yeah, of course, there are people on Mars. There's always been people on Mars. It'll, it'll just be just accepted. Yeah. Wow. I'm trying to wonder what the first jobs might be. We said earlier, uh, we were talking about the health implications. I imagine a doctor or a, a large team of doctors would be essential at the start. What else? Have you done a lot of thinking about this? I imagine you have. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right with the doctors because if you, you don't want to bring one doctor. If one doctor gets ill, then you've got a problem. <laughs> Most of the early jobs will be doctors and engineers. Those are the critical roles. Mm -hmm. Those will probably be the two main streams that people will train in. But amongst the crews, they need to have lots of other expertise, little sub-disciplines. So we talked about things like exobiology. If you want to look for life on Mars, you need to understand how to do that. You will need to have people specialised in technologies like 3D printing and power production, for instance. So physicists, chemists, scientists in general doing research on Mars. I don't think we'll need any politicians until we have maybe about a couple hundred people on Mars. In the early days, it will probably be everything will be unanimous decision-making. Um, but at some point, everyone doesn't have the time to make every single decision. Yeah, that's really fascinating, actually, to think about. What's the threshold in which you have to have a leader? If you look at tribes, they all have leaders, and mm. they might have a tribe as small as 20. It's the tyranny of the communication delay between Earth and Mars, which is the issue. People on Mars can't just call up um, Houston Mission Control and ask for help. Because if you've got a leak and you wait 40 minutes to get a reply, then your air's gone. So they have to be incredibly autonomous from day one. 
So yeah, the, the question about the threshold for leaders, it's interesting because if you have a situation where if something goes wrong, you need someone who can immediately say what you have to do to fix it, that suggests for a very small number of people, a military command structure with a clear commander who's in charge of the decisions and making life and death decisions could be very beneficial for a small outpost just because you can't just get everyone to like talk about everything if something is going wrong and needs to be fixed. That makes sense. It gets into more interesting territory when you already have redundancy, when you've got a maybe 50 to 100 people on Mars, then you probably don't need a military command structure. Uh, then you would probably maybe have a, a council of the experts in particular areas who would then make decisions. So pe- the people would meet, they'd talk about like the food supply in the colony, and then the botanists would then propose policies and things about that. There's also the the economic situation. I mean, at what threshold do you need to have money on Mars? Or do you need money on Mars? Because for a small settlement, uh, you have a clear expertise. Someone else has a clear expertise. You provide what you can do to the colony, and in turn, the colony provides everything else that you need. There's no need to have a monetary system for that. If there's only one doctor in the colony, you'd be a bit annoyed if they just kept like charging every time that you were going to visit them, for instance. So, yeah, there are so many interesting questions that come about from this because Mars is a chance to try new ideas as well with all the hindsight of what has worked and hasn't worked over the history on Earth. I was really interested in two of those points there. So, yes, money, and the other one was food. Could we just go to food first? How would plants fare in, um, did you say, 0.38 gravity? Are they just going to be able to be taller? If you, are you, are you going to have pumpkins the size of <laughs> cars? How, how is that going to work? The astronauts on the space station have actually already been growing plants up there. They even grew a salad themselves and actually, like, ate it to actually prove the idea that you can grow things in space. So plants grow well, even in the microgravity environment on the space station, because plants turn out to actually be so sensitive to gravity that even on the space station where it's not exactly zero G because the Earth isn't completely spherical, like a mountain range passes and there's a tiny, tiny fraction and the roots start growing towards it. The research seems to suggest that plants would be fine in the gravity environment on Mars. Uh, You wouldn't be growing them out on the surface. There's no soil on Mars. You would have special um, hydroponic gels, which is kind of like a nutrient solution that the plants would be growing in. That's a solution that we're looking into a lot more on Earth as well, isn't it? So that we don't have to use as many fields and we can start having farming in high-rise blocks instead. Yeah, vertical farming is particularly a big thing in Singapore, for instance. If you've got limited land area, just have a skyscraper, shove these hydroponics in, you can grow food for everyone. Mm. You only need electricity to actually... Because then you can illuminate the plants all throughout the day and night and you get much higher yields. So for food on Mars, early on, most people would be almost entirely vegetarian growing all of these plants, things like carrots, radish, maybe potatoes. Uh, I say almost entirely, because if you want to improve your biological efficiency, there are parts of plants that we can't ingest ourselves. But there are insects that can just eat anything. So the parts of plants we can't ingest, feed them to insects, like crickets and grasshoppers, and then they can provide a source of protein. They're a staple um, of the diets in like Southeast Asia in particular, and they're perfectly healthy. I suspect plants and insects will be very common early on on Mars. And this is actually another interesting implication for the environmental movement on the Earth. 
imagine that there's this big science communicator on Mars who's like the Uber, Chris Hadfield, Brian Cox also at the day, and he's talking about like eating insects on Mars. That could provide the catalyst to detoxify the image of insects as a source of meat, particularly in Western countries. And insects are so much more energy efficient than growing like chickens and cows. It may then be cool to eat insects because it's Martian food, for instance. (laughs) So that could actually help us solve the big pressing concern about we can't grow enough meat for the entire world, particularly with more countries like China and India going through the demographic transition at the moment. Um, And maybe one way to sustainably do that is by promoting insects. And Mars could help a lot with that. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting little... something that might come out of Mars that you would just never expect. And I, every single thing that we speak about with regards to Mars, there is undoubtedly going to be so many innovations, so, so many unimaginable different scenarios that are going to come out of it. So the other aspect was uh, economy. So do you envisage that there would be a Martian currency or do you think that they might start trading in one of these new cryptocurrencies? Hmm. That's an interesting point. Mars would probably have to have its own currency regulated on Mars because you can't really trade it on Earth stock markets with like this half an hour delay going on. Mm. Well, I mean, depending on where the orbits are, it could be a shorter six minutes round trip delay. Because otherwise, like, someone on Mars could have made a different investment decision when someone on the Earth is still deciding on what's going on. Yeah. It could just mess up the stock markets in very interesting ways. I'm not an expert on economics. I, I don't know how this could actually function or indeed whether the Martians would want something like that. All that we know is that on Earth, every culture has independently developed some form of either barter system. And the second that you have one person having something that someone else wants money tends to be a way to actually communicate that. So I'd be very surprised if Mars doesn't develop something along those lines. And um, perhaps it could be cryptocurrency-based. I've even seen some cryptocurrencies that have already been set up, like claiming that they're going to be the cryptocurrency for Mars. (laughs) I mean, who knows? It's early days to start thinking about such things. But once you're above a certain number of people on Mars, yeah, you've, you've got to think how you trade services. So if we go back to terraforming, one of the things that we're going to have to do is plant a lot of trees, maybe grasses, that type of thing, that we'll be able to take with us. But you said there's no soil. Am I right in thinking that there has been some reports recently about the UV effect on the surface regolith? So the UVs had a, an effect on that. It's created some new compounds, which makes it toxic. Mm. So could you just maybe explain about that? Sure. So with, with regards to the, the terraforming process, I should say that the big unknown in how long it would take in total would be the transformation of the atmosphere and the growing of all these plants. While getting early oceans could be 70 years, best case scenario with plants would be 200 years to transform the atmosphere to be breathable. And that would be even if like you had genetically engineered super plants going about, mm-hmm. which you might not want. Um, a more moderate estimate would be about 10,000 years just from like normal plants. Quite a big range there. Yeah, so um, because you'd want to have a very basic layer of like algae that can just survive on the surface to start with, that would then die. And when it dies, it deposits some of the nutrients it took up during its life. That provides like a micro layer of something a little bit like soil. 
that will then get distributed on Mars by the weather systems and the rain and things going on. And then you would gradually start putting maybe a type of like lichen that might go on top of it. And you're very gradually building it up through like moss and then like some like micro grass over many generations just to thicken this layer of soil until eventually you'd want to step up to something almost like a tundra-like environment um, with like Arctic trees and pines, for instance. You can imagine getting one day. It would be a very long process involved. Um, so yeah, you mentioned about the, the UV interactions with the regolith. So there have been a number of studies um, that have concluded that there's some interesting compounds that appear to be present on Mars called perchlorates, which when mixed with water can actually form some quite potent toxins, which would not be particularly present, um, particularly uh, pleasant for life. It can actually um, react with organic molecules and just break them down. It's it's like, I don't know, like imagine the surface being coated in like bleach or something. It's not particularly pleasant. There are, there are some contradicting findings about how prevalent this is, whether it's just pockets on Mars or whether it is the entire planet. There are also researchers investigating how you could filter that out and purify the top layers of Mars to then start laying down the soil. So that, that is an area where people will have to investigate when they actually get on with the terraforming. It could be that when the early rains start, it might wash out all this stuff into the ocean and then we get this big ocean of bleach or something on Mars. Um, so, yeah, that that's an area, again, that the Martians will have to address in yeah. the future. All we can do at the moment is just send more rovers and more orbiters to Mars to try and establish and map out whether these perchlorates are actually common. So the regolith, do, have we done any experiments of how we might be able to build with that? You talked about the bricks earlier. We have a reasonably good idea, at least in the locations where we've landed on Mars, what the regolith is actually made of. We do also have samples of the moon's regolith that was brought back by the Apollo missions. So you can go and buy on the internet a regolith simulant that is like an artificial regolith that has been made to replicate what the moon is like and what Mars is like. There have been some companies that have ordered this and done some experiments, but Again, it's a very early stage. I'm not aware of a company that's actually started building Mars bricks, for instance, out of these simulants. But I suppose that must be part of SpaceX's mission plan to have been able to build structures out of this before any humans show up. So SpaceX haven't talked that much about the actual specifics of base building on Mars. They're mainly focused on creating the transportation system to actually get there cheaply and with a large amount of material. They're presumably hoping that the second that they open the railroad, if you will, then other companies will then jump on board and then start developing things like that. I mean, and that's one of the, the criticisms that Elon Musk gets quite often. Oh, you want to send people to Mars, but you haven't got any plans for how people live there. Hmm. And then he often says, well, that's not what I'm working on at the moment. I just want to get people there first. One problem at a time, please. Yeah, one problem at a time. Or for him, actually, he's working on quite a lot of things at a time, isn't he? I mean, getting people to Mars is the biggest problem. Once you can get them to Mars and get them there alive, then everything else is, um, I won't quite say trivial in comparison, because it's still hard, but it's much easier than actually getting people to Mars. Are any of the private companies working on any technology that might be able to help with the terraforming? Hmm, not that I'm aware of. Um... There are some companies that have been investigating 
geoengineering on Earth, which is the fancy name basically for terraforming the Earth. It has been proposed that if climate change gets completely out of control on the Earth and we realise far too late, we could be able to use technology to try and knock the Earth back, which would be a very risky strategy because the Earth is a very complicated and finely balanced system. And you might say, okay, there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. We're just going to spray some uh, chemicals into the air to make clouds whiter and reflect off more light. But if you do that too much, all of a sudden no light hits the surface. And I, I exaggerate slightly, but those are technologies that some organizations, mainly like academic research as opposed to private companies, are investigating on the Earth and they would have implications for terraforming. Using that process, we'll be able to change the actual chemical buildup of our atmosphere. Yeah, so it's, it's things like building things that are called artificial trees, which is big factories that just like suck in CO2 and either store it underground or like actually break the bonds in CO2 and change it into some other molecule. Yeah, for our Earth, I just figure that why don't we just plant some more trees? That seems like... Yeah, that's a much more effective... It's, it's about the time scale. If like the temperature is completely spiraled out of control, we've got a huge drought, so you need to do something fast and you can't wait 100 years to fix the planet, then we could be in the situation where the only option is geoengineering. Mm. I mean, we can hope we don't get to that situation, but there does need to be more research so that we have the backup plan if we absolutely need it. Yeah, and like you were saying, on Mars, we wouldn't actually have the ability to grow trees, especially at the start anyway making these super greenhouse gases to then thicken the carbon dioxide atmosphere just from the CO2 that's already on Mars that's just frozen. Uh, in, in fact, funny thing that most of you don't seem to know is that during the Martian summer, the Martian atmosphere actually becomes twice as thick just because it's slightly hotter and part of the ice caps that's made of CO2 goes back into the atmosphere. Does that? We would just want to complete that process and make all of the CO2 at the ice caps go into the atmosphere permanently. Is there anything that worries you about us going to Mars? Anything that you're a bit sceptical about? Hmm. Do you just see positives in it? Or are you worried about the individual maybe loss of life from some of the first missions that might happen? So I think my worries tend to focus around human nature. I mean, in, in the early days, sure, were, were we inspiring people? Were we building this, like, um, have this great uh, project that we're actually doing? But what happens in the very long-term future, like 100, 200 years down the line? I mentioned about this this socio-political situation of, I'd be worried if we have um, a two-class system with people born on Mars having less opportunities and being seen as different from people on the Earth. I mean, it's obviously a lot further down the line, but I tend to be optimistic on matters of science, engineering, and technology, and science does make life better for everyone. But at the end of the day, we're, we're all still human. Science can make new things possible, but they can be good things and they can be bad things. It's up to humans and often politicians to decide what they're actually used for. I mean, in general, I mostly see positives for going to Mars, but at, at some point, Mars will just be part of the human sphere. It'll be just like any other country that we have on Earth. Maybe it might even have multiple countries. I, I don't know what kind of political structure the martians uh, will have in mind yeah so they could be the country spacex the country blue origin once those cities grow how do you envisage them interacting 
At the moment, the only legal framework we have for dictating activities in space is called the Outer Space Treaty, which was basically set up in a rush in the 60s to stop uh, the Russians or the Americans from claiming the moon. So it states that no government can own land beyond the Earth because it's for the common heritage of humanity. But it wasn't drafted with companies in mind. So there's murky legal waters about even land ownership. Can you own land? Mm. Um, the United States threw a new salvo in it like a few years ago when they said that if a US company mines an asteroid, they then own the material that they have mined. And that's now an issue. But most of the countries haven't agreed to that. So it's not entirely clear what would happen. So you'd be in a weird situation at the moment where if you built a house on Mars and it happened to be on top of some like rich mineral vein, someone could come over and move your house and start digging because you didn't own the land, but you only owned the house that you were in. So there are entire international treaties that will have to be redrafted once it's no longer hypothetical and we actually seriously have people on Mars and have to worry about these questions. And particularly if you've got a terraformed Mars, I mean, just the land area alone on a terraformed Mars has been estimated at around four quadrillion dollars just from the land value. <laughs> Who's put the figure on that? Oh, I, I don't know. It was it was like five years ago that, that I saw that figure. I should, I should check where it was. It was one of these like, so in one of these many papers that was actually looking at the terraforming process, they basically asked some economists at um, one of these international organizations like the IMF to actually just do a very simple calculation, what is the average land value on the Earth of undeveloped land? And then just extrapolate that to the total land surface area you would have on a terraformed Mars minus the areas covered by the ocean. I mean, yeah, if there are going to be huge civilizations on there at some point, it is going to have a quite a value, isn't it? Right. So what happens when, if we look into the future a little bit more? Using techniques that you're looking at at the moment in your PhD we have been able to discover other planets beyond our solar system. Now, do you envisage us being able to settle on those planets as well? Is that a long-term goal for humanity, do you think? So yeah, I, I tend to always think in the long term. I think often there's this great interplay between science and science fiction, where many people who become scientists are inspired by science fiction growing up. Uh, then scientists make discoveries, and then science fiction writers then write new science fiction, and that inspires the next generation. <laughs> it's a great feedback loop going on. So I was inspired when I was growing up by stories about big generation ships being sent to other star systems, where multiple generations would live and work on these ships because the stars are just so far away. I mean, even the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, is like 50,000 times further away than Mars is, and it takes us, what, six months or so to get to Mars. So the way I envision it is the focus of my research is on trying to understand what the atmospheres of planets around other stars, exoplanets, are actually made of, and hence what these distant worlds may actually be like. We're at the point where we now know that Earth-sized planets are very common in our galaxy. Do we know where the closest one is to us? Yeah, the, the closest one is actually around the nearest star to us. We, we hit the jackpot. There's a roughly Earth-mass planet called Proxima Centauri b, orbiting around the nearest star about 4.2 light-years away. Uh, we've seen some other habitable planets um, about 12 light-years away, some more about 40. And we, we, we've got a mission at the moment, TESS, which is doing an all-sky survey of the nearest and brightest stars to look for planets as well. 
based on extrapolations from the roughly 4,000 of these planets we've found so far, we believe there are about 40 billion Earth-sized planets in our own galaxy. And a very decent fraction of that would be in the habitable zone of their star. So potentially habitable planets are common and maybe even more common than even the most optimistic science fiction actually predicted. We, we've already got one critical piece of the puzzle. Earth-like planets are common. Earth-like in terms of just being Earth-sized. We don't yet know whether they're actually breathable. So what I'm focused on now is developing the techniques to actually peer into the atmospheres of these worlds, tell what gases are in the atmosphere. And we want to get to the point where we can look at a planet around another star and be able to tell that planet has 20% oxygen, that planet has 95% CO2, and be able to make some inferences as to whether some of these planets are habitable or indeed whether they could actually have life on board. And how close are we to that? You say they're 2.2 light years away. I mean, that, that's such a distance to look down a telescope at. So how do we know how much oxygen is actually in that? Well, we, we haven't detected oxygen yet. One of the interesting things about exoplanets is that the kind of the naive approach of just pointing a telescope at another star and then just zooming in, zooming in, zooming in, zooming in, there's the planet. That's really difficult to do. It has been done for some planets, but these are planets at very, very wide orbits, way further out than Pluto, that are also really young, so the planets are glowing in the infrared. We can see those directly with current technology, which we call direct imaging, but that's hard to do. We can't yet directly see a true Earth analogue. So we have to be more clever. We have to use different techniques. And these different techniques are actually great because they work out to really, really long distances. We can easily go out to a couple thousand light years. The main technique that I use is called the transit method, where we just we don't have to see the planet itself. All we have to do is see the star and see a dip in the light from the star when the planet passes in front. From looking at that dip, we can tell how large the planet is. If it's a big dip, we've got a gas giant. If it's a smaller dip, we've got a, a smaller, potentially rocky planet. And then the clever thing then comes in from looking at the size of the planet at different colours, different wavelengths of light. Because different gases absorb light at different wavelengths. So by seeing how the size of the planet changes for different colours, we get a unique fingerprint which we can disentangle to tell which gases are in the atmosphere and how much of each gas there actually is. Have you been able to find some exciting results in your research then? Yes, yeah, so one of the most recent results that I obtained. So about two years ago, I was involved in a study that made the first detection of a molecule called titanium oxide in the atmosphere of an exoplanet. And this is an exotic molecule that we don't even have in any of the planets in our own solar system because it can only really exist in gas giants at many thousands of degrees Celsius. So we're discovering things that we don't even have in our own solar system. Most recently, I also looked at the atmosphere of a Neptune mass planet and found there's some really weird chemistry going on in its atmosphere. About 1% of its atmosphere is water, the rest being hydrogen and helium. But the thing that really surprised me is that I was seeing some signatures that I could only explain 
by some really weird molecules that we call metal hydrides. And the bizarre thing is that these metal hydrides, we see them in stars, for instance, cooler stars, but they're not really stable at temperatures lower than about 1,000, 2,000 Celsius or so. And this planet was at a temperature of 400 or so Celsius. And this planet will be followed up by the James Webb Space Telescope. So what's the difference between the telescopes that we've got at the moment and the new telescopes that we're going to have over the next few years? One of the really big differences is the size of the telescope because the larger the telescope is, the more light it collects and that lets us just build much better signals such that we can actually do much more. It's all about how much light you actually collect. It is also important uh, the range of colours that you can see. So, for example, the Hubble Space Telescope is great for detecting water in exoplanet atmospheres, but it can only observe a very narrow range of colours in the infrared. There are other molecules, things like ammonia and hydrogen cyanide, that we would like to be able to see. Um, In fact, um, there are some theories of the origin of life on the Earth that have been investigating whether hydrogen cyanide could be one of the critical building blocks required to start life. So that would be an important molecule to look for in space. But Hubble's not very sensitive to it at the moment. But future telescopes will be able to see a much wider range of colours and that will let us detect new molecules. You know when you were applying for your funding for this sort of research, which aspects enables you to actually get funding? Is it the search for life? Are the governments interested in that? Or are they interested in potential places for us to go and settle at some point? Or are they just interested in the science? How does that work? So um, I don't think any funny agencies at the moment are thinking about actually going to exoplanets. In fact, if you propose research looking at things like interstellar technologies, it's actually very difficult to get any funding for that Mm. research. So it tends to be private philanthropy that actually does that. So the big focus is the search for life, how life actually began and where we came from. These, these are kind of the big ways that NASA in particular pictures characterizing exoplanets as part of their research portfolio. So in general, exoplanet science is doing pretty well, actually, on the funding front in astronomy, because it's very easy to explain what we do. It's very relatable. We all know what it's like to live on a planet, because we do live on one. We, we know about these big questions about are we alone in the universe? And we're just reaching the point where for the first time we'll be able to look for life around other stars. So there's a very reasonable chance that we will be the first generation to know that we're not alone in the universe. And it doesn't actually cost that much to do the research that we're doing. It's, I mean, I'm a theorist. Like, um, I, I just need um, a computer, electricity, and some pens and paper, and I can do my science. So is that your prediction? You think that we will be able to find some some life. Will we be definite that there will be life there? I think we will find the first signatures of gases that we're reasonably confident are life within the next 10 years, if we get lucky. I mean, it could turn out that life is rare in the universe and that there's something special about the Earth. I mean, th- this is what's fascinating. We have a sample size of one for life, so we don't know whether it's common, whether it's rare. We don't, we don't know anything, really. If life is common, I think we will have made what will eventually turn out to be the first detection within 10 years, but it'll be very controversial at the beginning. 
In fact, when the first exoplanets were discovered in the 1990s, it wasn't really until 2000 that people stopped arguing about whether these planets actually existed, and it wasn't just like turbulent motion in the atmospheres of stars that was mimicking a planet. I mean, that's how science works. Any extraordinary claim needs good evidence with very sceptical people, and ultimately the first tentative detections of life we will get will probably motivate building even larger and better telescopes to then test that claim and prove without doubt whether it's true or not. If you got your way, what changes would you make to the current system for us to be able to make those, those discoveries sooner? Would we put a telescope up on Mars? What, what advancements can we make to make those, you know, to make those discoveries? Large space-based telescopes and also large ground-based telescopes would be the way to go, and we are working on those areas right now. So to give some context, the, the James Webb Space Telescope, which will basically be Hubble Mark II, should be going up in 2021. That is about um, six and a half metres in diameter. At the moment, some of the largest telescopes on the ground that we have are about 10 metres. We're building at the moment the next generation of ground-based telescopes that we call the extremely large telescopes, because we're not very creative with that naming. Uh, these telescopes will be 30 to 40 metres in diameter. They're, they are huge, like mountains have been levelled, to, um, particularly to build the extremely large telescope in Chile. And so those ground-based telescopes have advanced technology that we can use to actually cancel out the Earth's atmosphere by firing lasers into the atmosphere, measuring how the laser distorts, and like bending the mirrors of the telescope to cancel out what the Earth's atmosphere is doing. It's, it's called adaptive optics. It's amazing technology. Mm. So in terms of actually how to do it faster, it's partly funding limited, but it's also just a lot of engineering work. It's really hard to do. So even if NASA had an unlimited budget, I don't think it would be able to go that much faster. If we did have more money, we could launch more telescopes. We could look at more objects. Um, and that would accelerate the research overall. Um, but I think we're already in a reasonable funding position at the moment, uh, which is not true of many areas of astronomy and science. Um, but the search for life seems to be doing reasonably well at the moment. I won't turn down more money um, <laughs> if someone's offering it, but uh, we probably wouldn't be able to go that much faster than we're going at the moment. That's good. I suppose one of the, one of the only reasons that you could go faster is if just more people wanted to get involved in it through inspiring people with missions to Mars and what Virgin are doing, going mm -hmm. just giving people the opportunity to have a look at space or the Earth from space will inspire a new generation, won't it? Absolutely. And so I, I often think about my own research in the big context. Mm. Let's say I'm able to look at the atmosphere of a habitable planet that's relatively near to us, characterise it and find out this is a planet where it looks like it could support life. I mean, by the point I retire, what I would envision is once we know there are habitable worlds out there and we know there's life, but we don't know what it's like, that I hope will inspire a generation of engineers to really think about how we could build probes to go to some of the nearest exoplanets and to really start our journey towards becoming an interstellar species, not just an interplanetary species like we're working at towards Mars. We do know of some technologies we could build in the near future to send very, very small probes to nearby exoplanets. 
So we're talking about things like having a satellite that weighs one gram with a huge reflective um, solar sail, we call it. And you basically blast it with a laser and the laser reflects off the solar sail and then it accelerates this spacecraft up to about 20% the speed of light. And even at that speed, it takes you a good 20 years to get to the nearest star. Who came up with that? That (laughs) If you were dreaming and you woke up and you had that in your head, you just think, that was ridiculous, I'll I'll move on to something else now. So we call it radiation pressure, and it's actually been known for over 100 years now that you can actually do this. But having a satellite that weighs one gram, would we be able to talk to this satellite? Well, see, this is interesting that the technology on a satellite that used to be the size of a bus in like the 60s or 70s, we can now make into something called a CubeSat, which is this tiny little thing that you can shove just hundreds of them on board a rocket launch. We can't build these one-gram satellites. Yet. I mean, we, you could build a one-gram satellite, but it wouldn't be able to do anything today. It's relying on Moore's law and the miniaturization of technology. If we can shrink a satellite that's about a meter today to something that's a couple centimeters and weighs one gram, and you've got to imagine you've got to have a camera on this, you've got to have a communications array to get the signal back to the Earth. Mm. You might even send hundreds of these in like a shotgun swarm towards the system in case some are destroyed en route or stop working. And then you've got to build this huge laser array on the Earth to actually <laughs> uh, fire like the Death Star and whoosh, accelerate them. Can you just explain Moore's law for, for people who don't know? Oh, yeah. So, so Moore's law is, um, it explains why computers get better over time. Uh, traditionally, it was that every 18 months to two years, the amount of transistors, the central unit of computers, would double the number that you could actually put in a given area. Now we're starting to get to the point where it's harder to shrink them more because, I mean, ultimately you can't get transistors smaller than atoms. There is a finite uh, limit. So now it's more about the cost to put a given amount of computing units, these transistors, into a given volume is dropping. Yeah. So it just means computers have been reliably getting better, actually exponentially better uh, over time. Yeah, smaller and cheaper. Yep. Yeah. Which is good for everyone. Yeah, it's incredible. There, there are some tentative signs of it slowing down in the last few years, but it's still progressing at a reasonable rate. It just means we're going to have to get more inventive. We can't just shrink things now because the more you shrink them, you also produce more heat as well. And so you've got to think how to get rid of that heat. So there are more interesting architectures of like three-dimensional computing chips being developed. So I don't think it's going to stop within the next 10 years or so. It just means that the people building these chips are getting more creative. Right, so I want some predictions from you. You've already given me the prediction of within 10 years, you think that we're going to find signs of life, signatures of life on other planets. Yep. When do you think that human might visit one of those exoplanets? I think we could have a probe without anyone on board taking the first photograph of an exoplanet by the end of the 2060s if there's a real push for it and the technology's there. In terms of getting a person to an exoplanet, a spacecraft with hundreds or thousands of people weighs a lot more than one gram, and you can't really accelerate it up to high speeds. So just the journey would take at least, I mean, we're talking a couple centuries just to get there. So I think the first person could be at an exoplanet by the end of the 2200s. I think it's really difficult to imagine 
distance. I can imagine what it's like to walk down into my local town, but I can't imagine what two light years is. Is there any way of scaling it down or sort of visualising? Okay, so if you have a car that does a really good job and just lasts for, for decades or so before it finally breaks down, you might just about be able to drive from the Earth to the Moon, okay? which a space probe can do in like 10 hours. That probe that can do that journey in 10 hours will take about 70,000 years to get to the nearest star, about four light years away. <laughs> it's just the, the distances involved in our galaxy are just mind-boggling. It's very difficult to grasp. Mm. When you put it like that, there isn't much hope for individuals seeing changes on that scale. It's, mm. it's a really exciting thing to think about. What would it be like in a thousand years' time? Would we mm. be able to be on these different planets? Would we be able to have cities built on a terraformed Mars? Mm. But in terms of what you or I or anyone else that's living at the moment would be able to see, it's so unfortunate that we would just will never be able to see it. I still aspire to live to 500. I'm not giving up just yet. <laughs> All right, I think this is probably a good place to leave. I've taken up a lot of your time and I really appreciate it. It's been so interesting learning about it all. Yeah, thanks so much for all the fascinating questions. That was a great conversation. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I just want to say that your YouTube channel, it's got so much fantastic information on there so anyone listening that hasn't yet seen martian colonists and there'll be a link in the description about it as well there's so much amazing information that you've reported from the various space missions that have been going on around the world what i really like about it is that everything that you say you quantify with science and with facts and with research that people or yourself have done it's what um what i am for with this podcast as well that everyone coming on as a guest, can tell the truth about things in an open space. Um, is there anything else that you want to tell anybody, uh, other than obviously your YouTube channel, that you want to <laughs> tell them about? The, the last thing that I'll say just to end off is that, so it's, it's very easy just in day-to-day -day life to lose track of the bigger picture about what's going on. And particularly, it can always feel very negative what we see in the media in terms of oh there's, there's wars going on or there's family or there's strife going on but if you actually look at objective figures things like literacy rates things like the average amount of um, income that people have around the world like child mortality things are getting better we are living in the safest healthiest best time to be alive that is providing more opportunities for anyone at any point in human history and all the trends seem to indicate that this is continuing. So I say when thinking about the future, although dystopian fiction is very popular these days, the future is going to be better than what we have today. So yeah, just be excited about the future. I think that's a nice way to leave it off. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you very much. So there you have it, Ryan McDonald changing the world. If you want to find out more about him, he's on Twitter, at Martian Colonist, or you can visit him on his website, distantworlds.space, or as I've just said, he's got a great YouTube channel called Martian Colonist. If you like this music, as I am sure you do, go and check the rest of her stuff out. She's called Laura James. A big thank you to her for letting me use her music. This track's called Rooftops. Find her online, on YouTube, on Spotify. She's well worth a listen. 
if you want to get in touch with me tell me what you like tell me what you don't like you can find me on twitter at fascinatepod if you can be bothered doing that no worries i'll see you here next time anyway also hit that subscribe button thanks for listening